0: This morning we're going to hear uh, God's law and be confronted of our sin, really, from a unique place, from a parable from Luke 18. I'll be reading verses 9 through 13. So again, this is Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Also he, speaking of Jesus, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. The sin in this parable is self-righteousness. And it's a heinous and grievous sin for a number of reasons. One, it denies God's holiness. If a person is so self-righteous that they think they can come into God's presence on the basis of any of their filthy rags righteousness, they don't understand the holiness and righteousness of God. Two, they don't understand just how depraved they are before the face of a God who is so pristinely and perfectly holy. Third, self-righteousness by design makes us look down and despise those we think are inferior to us. And a fourth reason, it robs God of his glory to graciously and sovereignly save sinners. It robs God of his glory and his pleasure to save sinners his way. So when we hear a parable like this, We need to make sure we don't inadvertently become the Pharisee. Yeah, those guys over there, they're so self-righteous. Because we all have that propensity. And the only hope we have for this sin and any other is to cry out for mercy. So as a a body of believers, we confess our sins together, and we're simply going to use Luke 18, 13. Again, it's printed in your bulletin, Luke 18, 13. We'll say this in unison. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then hear this word of pardon from Luke 18, verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That when we cry out for mercy, even as filthy sinners, God lavishes grace and mercy upon us, and he's pleased to do so. What a great Savior. What a great gospel. Well, let's continue uh, praising the Lord, singing number 103a. Well, by way of introduction, I want to ask you to open up your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. I want to read verses 17 through 19. Isaiah 65. Beginning of verse 17. Says the Word of God For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. For the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. And her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now, as good Bible students, you likely recognize that those verses in Isaiah 65 are repeated nearly verbatim in Revelation 21. And these magnificent words are describing. The new heaven and earth, a completely renewed and restored creation. And we're being told by Isaiah that it's going to be a place of unimaginable gladness and pleasure and joy. It'll be the dwelling place of God with men. It will be a perfected Jerusalem where we will fully enjoy God. And don't miss this. He will enjoy us. That's really hard to take in, isn't it? And in this section on the new heavens and the new earth, there's only one command. In this section, one imperative for God's servants to obey in this unending eternity that awaits us. Here's the command. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Those are the marching orders in the new heavens and the new earth. I suppose that's why the Apostle Paul picked up on the language of Isaiah 64 and Isaiah 65 to teach the church that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for them that love him. You see, Isaiah is telling us in our new home, the new heavens and the new earth, with our resurrected, glorified bodies, there will be joys and ecstasies that really are unfathomable to us right now. And we'll spend the eons of eternity growing in our knowledge of God, growing in our knowledge and enjoyment and love of God and having an an ever-increasing awareness that He loves us And again, don't miss this. He enjoys us. And of course, this will fuel our worship forever. I was reminded this week that my memory isn't nearly as sharp as it once was. And if you're north of 60, you likely know what I mean. But in the new heavens, in the new earth, we'll have a different type of memory issue. I suspect about 10 minutes in the new world... And we'll look at one another and say, there's something I remember. Do you remember, what is it, cancer? Do you remember that? Do you, do you remember dementia? Do, do, do you remember heart disease? Do you remember war and famine? Do you remember death? What, what were those things? And then we'll look at one another and say, oh, well, no matter, we can't seem to remember those things. Because there'll be nothing in our existence that could cause us to weep. There'll be nothing in our existence that won't facilitate and add to our joy. And what's amazing grace is that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. This is what awaits God's people. This is the grand culmination of God's plan of redemption. Christ is going to return in power and in glory. And there will be a final resurrection of the dead. There will be a final judgments and then an entire eternity will be set before us where it will be incumbent upon us to keep this command. Be glad and rejoice forever. Forever. And what I create. And one of the questions you might have in all this is, what will our existence be like then? What will our glorified bodies be like? What will happen at, uh, at the resurrection of the dead? Well, this morning as we return to our study in 1 Thessalonians, we'll make a beginning at answering some of those questions but first let's seek the lord's blessing pray with me once more our great god we thank you and bless you that you've given us such a hopeful and encouraging word we pray that it blesses the hearts of those who hear it this day and that it might produce in us adoration and worship we ask this in jesus name amen Let me ask you to open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 18. As I said uh, last week, we're going to be a couple weeks in this passage. It really is a, a tour de force in end times teaching. 1 Thessalonians 4. Beginning in verse 13, this is God's word. Paul writes, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Well, dearest congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've learned that the Thessalonian church was a strong and faithful church. They believed the gospels, their Lives bore bore witness to the transformative power of God in their lives. And, And when people observed how the Thessalonians lived, they saw the great triad of Christian virtues faith, hope, and love. But even among the godliest of believers, it's possible to fall into error, especially early on in your walk with the Lord. And remember, these were relatively new believers in Thessalonica. And one of the errors that plagued this early church had to do with end times. They had listened when Paul taught about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But as they thought these things through, they had managed to get their wires crossed, which ought not to be a total surprise when we think about how we understand end times. They seem to have thought that if someone died before Jesus returned that they were going to miss out on the glories of his second coming. And so Paul's going to spill a lot of ink in the rest of 1 Thessalonians and then the first half of 2 Thessalonians to help the church sort of untangle their end times wires and to know that Christians don't grieve as others who don't have gospel hope. Now we learned last week... That the doctrine Paul's teaching, the overarching doctrine in much of the rest of this epistle and the first part of the other epistle has to do with eschatology, which literally means a word about last things. And while it would be very easy for us to say, this is just hard stuff and I don't want to have to think it through the Apostle Paul would tell us why and even give us an explanation why that's not a suitable answer. Look again there at verse 13. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So it's important to the Apostle that God's people think rightly about last things. Another reason this is important is that understanding the hope Christians have facing death enables us to come alongside and comfort brothers and sisters who are grieving. That, that's verse 18. Comfort one another with these words. So this is important teaching for living well in the comforts of the gospel. Now, on the previous Lord's Day, we focused on the doctrine of the intermediate state. That is, what happens to our souls and our bodies when we die. At our death, our bodies are laid to rest in the grave and our souls are instantly transported to the intimate presence of the Lord Jesus where those souls then, fully conscious, fully praising the Lord, await to return with the Lord Jesus. And here's something I'm really going to harp on over the next couple of weeks, as wonderful as the doctrine of the intermediate state is, and as much comfort as that gives us, that's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is when Jesus comes again. Because at that point, our bodies and our souls will be reunited, and they'll be glorified, and, and that's what happens at the resurrection of the dead. That's what I want to focus on this morning, the resurrection of the dead. Again, verse 13 tells us the church doesn't grieve like those who have no hope. And the reason for that is found in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, don't miss that the prerequisite for possessing and benefiting from this glorious hope is saving faith. In the basics of the gospel, believing Christ's death accomplished something for your salvation, believing Christ's resurrection actually accomplished something for your salvation. Because we believe that God gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We we talked about this a bit last week, but the, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid those wages for his people when he suffered and he died on the cross on our behalf. And we have to believe he died for us, for our sins, if we want this gospel comfort. And we also have to believe that he rose again from the grave. And this is imperative because it tells us that Jesus didn't only pay the wages of sin, which is death, that he actually conquered death. He was victorious over death and the grave. He arose in a glorified and resurrected body. Again, the death and resurrection of Christ, it's really gospel 101 stuff. But it is the prerequisite if we want to have that everlasting hope is believing the gospel now. Paul put it this way in First Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Christ's death and his resurrection is the ground floor of our gospel hope and the fundamental reason that our sorrow isn't like that of the world's. As surely as Christ died, all our sins, past, present, and future are paid for. And as surely as Christ rose from the grave and resurrected and glorified body, so too will all of the faithful. Actually, down in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul makes a connection with the resurrection there when he writes, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that's what Paul's saying in 1 Thessalonians 4. when, When Christ returns... He's going to come with the souls of all the saints who have died and their bodies will be called to rise up and be united with their souls and glorified in that instant and then those who are still alive on earth at the time of His second coming, they're going to be caught up and translated into glorified bodies and souls and then we shall always be with the Lord. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. Now, I want to dig just a bit deeper into the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, anastasis. And it comes from a verb that means simply to raise up. And that's what will happen to our bodies at Christ's Return again next week we're going to look at all the sights and sounds that will accompany his return but what will ultimately happen is that our bodies will be raised up and the fact of Jesus bodily resurrection is the guarantee that our bodies will be raised with him at the resurrection of the dead and this is One of the reasons that we see the resurrection of the dead taught much more prominently in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. Christ's resurrection, as I've mentioned, it was the first fruits, it was the surety, it was the sure pledge that all who are in Christ will rise on that great and glorious day. Now, I just mentioned that the teaching is obviously much more prominent in the New Testament, but we also find it frequently interspersed in the Old Testament. We actually sang about it in our hymn of preparation from Psalm 16. I want you to listen carefully to Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So don't miss this. David's hope wasn't just at his soul would be happy and satisfied in God's presence. It was a hope that his whole being, to include his flesh, would experience the fullness of joy at God's right hand. And and I suspect most of you are familiar with this psalm, and therefore you know this is a, a messianic psalm. It points forward to Jesus, the Christ, whose flesh, we've already talked about this, would conquer Sheol and his bodily resurrection. And David's saying, I share in that hope. He believed, David believed, his flesh would overcome Sheol. You can go back centuries before David, to the earliest Old Testament times and you actually find the hope of a bodily resurrection in Job. Job's Sufferings and struggles are so legendary that even non-Christians will sometimes speak of them. But in the midst of his intense pains and sorrows and heartache and agonies, we find the most amazing statement of faith in Job 19, verses 23 through 27. He cries out, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job was watching his body, and really the entirety of his life, waste away to nothing. And if you've read through Job, as I suspect most of you have, you know this is a man whose life at this point was in intense despair, despair, but he knew life on this side of glory is not all the life that there is. And he was longing for the resurrection from the dead to see God with his own eyes, to be comforted by his intimate presence, to behold his Lord. And Job's confidence in believing he would live again, body and soul, was simply this. He knew his Redeemer lives. And of course, there are even prophetic promises in the Old Testament that anticipate our bodily resurrection. Isaiah twenty-six nineteen offers these soul-stirring words. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. That's the resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12, two, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And incidentally, this is something of an aside. But you know, when you're reading through the New Testament, you come across the Sadducees and you find out that they don't believe in the resurrection, you actually begin to think, well, boy, they didn't really believe very much of the Old Testament, did they? The resurrection of the dead is scattered throughout the Old Testament. And, of course, one of the ways we see God's power to raise the dead are in the various miraculous resurrections in the Bible. There are at least three resurrections in the Old Testament. They're all in Kings, incidentally. And there are many, many resurrections in the New Testament. And they all teach us that God has the power to raise the dead. And what those various resurrections we read about in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what they don't teach us is what our glorified and resurrected bodies will be like. And that's because with the exception of one... All the other people in the Bible who were brought back from the dead, they were still in corrupt mortal bodies and they all went on to die. One of my favorite accounts is when the Lord Jesus resurrected Lazarus because it not only put on display the Lord Jesus' power, but it put on display His tenderness and His compassion for a child of God that He dearly loved. But as wonderful as Lazarus' resurrection was, it was temporary. He still died because his body still suffered from the same limitations that yours and mine suffers from. The only prototype in the Bible to teach us what a glorified body is like is the resurrected body of Jesus. He's the only resurrected person with a glorified body we have eyewitness accounts of. And we're meant to learn lessons from his glorified body to teach us about ours. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now that's really amazing. The Lord Jesus will transform these lowly bodies to be conformed to his glorious body. We need to understand in the future resurrection are our same bodies that lived and died will be raised. We we don't get replacement bodies. We, We get this body, our bodies. They're going to be changed. They're going to be glorified. And what's most important is they're going to be perfectly suited for the eternal glories of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I want to just take a minute and talk about some of the implications, some of the applications when we realize that our physical bodies, these bodies, are going to be glorified and transformed. Because it really changes how we think about our present lives. It it reminds us that our bodies matter. The physicality of our lives matter. And, And Christians can easily miss this and they don't understand if they don't understand the importance and significance of our bodies what they're buying into is a Greek way of thinking that thought our bodies were uck and nasty see there was almost nothing more offensive to the Greek culture than the idea that a soul would be reunited to the body their whole hope was that the soul would be freed from the prison house of the body. Paul's saying, no, they're going to be rejoined. Our bodies matter. That's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies matter. And Paul would write in Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you to obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members, that's your physicality, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Our bodies matter in life and in death. That's why Christians need to think very carefully about things like cremation. And that's not to say that God can't or won't raise up a body that's been destroyed in times of war or or burned in in a fire. God can do that. But our bodies should be honored in life and in death. Our bodies matter. The physicality of our bodies matter because our great hope isn't that our souls just sort of float around as some kind of ethereal, cloudy thing. It's that our soul and body will come back together and as a whole person, a whole glorified person will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus. Another wonderful implication of the resurrection of the dead and the fact that these bodies that we know and recognize will be resurrected is, it has to do with the way we we grieve the loss of a loved one. I'm going to borrow a bit here from Rick Phillips. He writes, The resurrection of the dead is a great comfort to those who've lost loved ones or even those who face the ravages of disease in their own body or even as death approaches. Ultimately, sin and death will claim nothing, from anyone who's trusted in Christ. The very body of every believer will be redeemed and brought to glory. What hope this gives as we grieve the loss of a Christian father whose voice once instructed us, knowing that we'll hear a glorified voice singing praises to Christ and glory. Or to a Christian mother, whose hands so tenderly ministered to our needs and yet again clasp us in renewed strength in eternity. And so Paul exalted, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by that same power. This is one of the glorious comforts of the resurrection. I want to transition a bit here and talk a little bit about the nature of that glorified body. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to begin at verse 42. This is going to help us think about a little bit more about our bodies. First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there's a spiritual body. Now basically, Paul lays out four dimensions that has to do with the transformation of the believer's body at the resurrection. And I'm going to mention these, and again, I'm indebted here to Dr. Phillips and Dr. Venema. First, the resurrected body. Is imperishable. It's imperishable so as to partake forever in the reign of Christ. What is sown corruptible will be raised incorruptible. Now our, our current bodies, right there, they're prone to disease and decay. Doesn't matter how beautiful you are, your natural beauty decays. I I often will tell my wife, come come and look at this, and one of the saddest things you see uh, in the celebrity world is folks who were, at one point, the most beautiful people on the planet, and they simply can't deal with the reality that when they hit 50, 60, 70, their looks fade. They're still gorgeous people, but they end up doing silly things and destroy themselves with all kinds of bizarre treatments and take their beautiful countenance that would have aged graciously and turn it into something that's monstrous because they think that's their only hope. But whatever beauty we have on this side of glory is incomparable to the beauty we'll have on the other side and it's imperishable. C.S. Lewis said something really helpful. He said, if you or I could see a glorified Christian now, it would almost be impossible not to fall down before them and worship them because they would be that beautiful. He's not advocating person worship. He's making an example. But in the resurrection, the corruptible puts on the incorruptible. Second, the glorious, excuse me, the resurrection of the body is glorious. It's sown in dishonor. We're told it's raised in... Glory. Now the term dishonor is usually used by Paul when he's talking about the disgrace of sin to which our bodies have been corrupted in their present desires. But in the resurrection, our bodies will shine in the glory of perfect holiness. We really can't fathom what this will be like when our body has desires that are perfectly holy. What we will want in heaven more than anything else in our body is to love God. And when we've loved him a billion years in the future, we'll know we haven't begun to explore the depths of his love. And there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And it's what we will want because finally we'll do what we were created to do. Third, the resurrection body is mighty. It's sown in weakness, raised in power. Unlike our current condition that so often falls short of what we desire, the resurrection body, it's going to long to serve God tirelessly and it will be able to serve God tirelessly. Inexhaustible energy. Finally, where we currently have a natural body. The resurrection body is spiritual in nature. Now, what this is saying is we're going to have a physical body that's fully and completely and thoroughly governed by the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ that indwells us. So those are four wonderful characteristics, incorruptible, Glorious, powerful, spiritual. And you know what that means? It means we're fit for heaven for eternity. I want to sort of close where I began. So let me ask you to turn to one other passage. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. At the resurrection of the dead, Christ will fit us for glory. He will fit us for the new Jerusalem. He will fit us to be men and women who behold him and look into his face And enjoy pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father we thank you and bless you for your word. And just the enormous comfort this provides us. In a life where we see creation and lives and institutions. And all things decay. We have a steadfast hope we're thankful we're thankful that our inheritance it'll never perish it'll never spoil it'll never fade away even right now you're keeping it for us in heaven And when Christ returns the fullness of that inheritance will be manifest help us to walk faithfully and joyfully Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we can reflect back on verse 14 and what I said are the basics of the Gospel 101. The invitation to come to this table is extended to those who know that the Lord Jesus' death paid for all of your sins. And it's that atoning death that you've pinned your hope to and the certainty of His resurrection. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, He's freely offered in the gospel, you're a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, this communion table and this meal is for you. As we come to the table, we will recite the Apostles' Creed as we do so often. And again, I would just encourage you as we use the Apostles' Creed over the next couple weeks to to pick up on the kind of phrases that we speak of as fundamental articles of the Christian faith that that we're learning about this morning. One of them is resurrection of the dead. So again, on page 851, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Then let me ask you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. And I have a a meditation from Reverend Kevin. It's been about a year or so since we used this, but I thought it would be appropriate this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, until he comes you can follow along as i read this or simply listen but it is printed there in your bulletin the reverend kevin writes the lord's table around which we gather as christians is a place at which we remember him it is also the sign of god's pledge god's covenant to us in the precious blood of christ The Lord's table is also the center of our spiritual fellowship, one with another in Christ. But I want us to think of the Lord's Supper now as the service of hope. There's something forward-looking in the Lord's Supper, and it's this hope that I want you to catch. Have you ever said goodbye to somebody with the sinking feeling in your heart that you'd never see them again? But if there's been the faintest hope that you'd see them once more, that there would be some opportunity of being reunited. Well, what a difference that has made. The Lord left his disciples and he went up where he was before, but his going away was not the end of hope. It was not the beginning of depression because concerning him there was not merely the faint hope but the clearest teaching that he would come again. The Lord's Supper, looking not only backwards to the cross, but also forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the token and constant witness to the fact that the Lord Jesus is to return and that before us there stretches out a vast prospect of glorious hope. The Lord's Supper is the token of the Lord's return. There is to come a glorious moment when it will be consummated and realized in glory That is unspeakable in an intimacy of face-to-face union with God, which we've never imagined down here. It's to be observed till He come. The Lord's Supper then is a service of hope. That's when our Lord chose in His sovereignty to keep His disciples reminded of Him by the institution of the feast. He was building not only on the past, that is to say the Passover feast, He was also building on the expectation of glorious hope in the form of a wondrous banquet. The Lord's Supper is anticipatory. It points us to our heavenly hope and home. And that's declared to us every time we hear, till he come, till he come. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious hope we have in the Lord's Supper in true communion with our ascended King who has indeed accomplished our salvation and will surely, surely come for us. We pray if there are any here this day whose hearts are grieving, that they would hear our Lord's exhortation, let not your hearts be troubled. To know that he will come back for them. And every time we participate in the Lord's Supper and we hear those words, till he come, it is a pledge that he's coming for us to usher us into glory. Grant us this gospel hope, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, on the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it. He said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, dear friends, take and eat and remember and believe the body of the Lord Jesus was offered for all your sin. After supper the Lord Jesus took the cup and having given thanks he offered it to his disciples saying drink from it all of you this is the blood of my covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well beloved of the Lord take and drink and remember and believe the precious blood of the Lord Jesus was shed for all your sin. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 7 after these things I looked And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessings and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. we we'll receive the Lord's benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen.